0: Part Two of Chapter Six Lembarene of Travels in West Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Travels in West Africa by Mary H. Kingsley part two of chapter six lembarene now i will ask the surviving reader who has waded through this desertation on cookery if something should not be done to improve the degraded condition of the bantu cooking culture not for his physical delectation only but because his present methods are bad for his morals and drive the men to drink let alone assisting in riveting him in the practice of polygamy which the missionary party say is an exceedingly bad practice for him to follow the interrelationship of these two subjects may not seem on the face of it very clear but interrelationships of customs very rarely are i will remember m jacot coming home one day at kangwe from an evangelizing visit to some adjacent fan-towns, and saying he had had given to him that afternoon a new reason for polygamy, which was that it enabled a man to get enough to eat. This sounds sinister from a notoriously cannibal tribe, but the explanation is that the fans are an exceedingly hungry tribe, and require a great deal of providing for. It is their custom to eat about ten times a day— when in village, and the men spend most of their time in the palaver houses at each end of the street, the women bringing them bowls of food of one kind or another all day long. When the men are away in the forest rubber or elephant hunting, and have to cook their own food, they cannot get quite so much, but when I have come across them on these expeditions, they halted pretty regularly every two hours, and had a substantial snack, and the gorge— they all go in for after a successful elephant hunt is a thing to see once there are other reasons which lead to the prevalence of this custom besides the cooking one is that it is totally impossible for one woman to do the whole work of a house look after the children prepare and cook the food prepare the rubber carry the same to the markets fetch the daily supply of water from the stream cultivate the plantation, etc., etc. Perhaps I should say it is impossible for the dilatory African woman, for I once had an Irish charwoman who drank, who would have done the whole week's work of an African village in an afternoon, and then been quite fresh enough to knock some of the nonsense out of her husband's head with that of the broom, and throw a kettle of boiling water or a paraffin lamp at him, if she suspected him of flirting with other ladies.' that woman who deserves fame in the annals of her country was named harrigan she has attained immortality some years since by falling downstairs one saturday night from excitement arising from the images mr harrigan conduct but we have no mrs harrigan in africa the african lady does not care a travelling white smith's execration if her husband does flirt so long as he does not go and give to other women the cloth etc that she should have the more wives the less work says the african lady and i have known men who would rather have had one wife and spent the rest of the money on themselves in a civilized way driven into polygamy by the women, and of course the state of affairs is most common in non-slave-holding tribes, like the Fan. Mission work was first opened upon the Ogowe by Dr. Nassou, the great pioneer and explorer of these regions. He was acting for the American Presbyterian Society, but when the French government demanded education in French in the schools, the stations on the Ogowe Lembarene, and the talaguga were handed over to the mission evangelique of paris and have been carried on by its representatives with great devotion and energy i am unsympathetic in some particulars for reasons of my own with christian missions so my admiration for this one does not arise from the usual ground of admiration for missions namely that however they may be carried on they are engaged in a great and holy work but I regard the mission évangélique, judging from the results I have seen, as the perfection of what one may call a purely spiritual mission. Lembarene is strictly speaking a district which includes Adanlinan Ilanga, and the island, but the name is locally used to denote the great island in the Ogowe, whose native name is Nendi, Isangi but for the sake of the general reader I will keep to the everyday term of Lembarene Island. Lembarene Island is the largest of the islands on the Ogowe. It is some fifteen miles long, east and west, and a mile to a mile and a half wide. It is hilly and rocky, uniformly clad with forest, and several little permanent streams run from it on both sides into the Ogowe it is situated one thirty miles from the sea at the point just below the entrance of the nguni where the ogowe commences to divide up into that network of channels by which like all great west african rivers save the congo it chooses to enter the ocean the island as we mainlanders at Kangwe used to call it was a great haunt of mine particularly after i came down from talaguga and saw fit to regard myself as competent to control a canoe from andande the beach of kangwe the breadth of the arm of the ogowe to the nearest village on the island was about that of the thames at Blackwall. black wall one half of the way was slack water the other half was broadside on to a stiff current now my pet canoe at andande was about six feet long pointed at both ends, flat-bottomed, so that it floated on the top of the water. Its freeboard was, when nothing was in it, some three inches, and the poor thing had seen trouble in its time, for it had a hole you could put your hand in at one end, so in order to navigate it successfully you had to squat in the other, which immersed that to the water level but safely elevated the damaged end in the air." of course you had to stop in your end firmly because if you went forward the hole went down into the water and the water went into the hole and forthwith you floundered with all hands i e you and the paddle and the calabash baler this craft also had a strong weather helm owing to a warp in the tree of which it had been made i learnt all these things one afternoon paddling around the sandbank. And the next afternoon, feeling confident in the merits of my vessel, I started for the island and I actually got there, and associated with the natives, but feeling my arms were permanently worn out by paddling against the current, I availed myself of the offer of a gentleman to paddle me back in his canoe. He introduced himself as Samuel, and volunteered the statement that he was a very good man, We duly settled ourselves in the canoe, he occupying the bow, I sitting in the middle, and a Mrs. Samuel sitting in the stern. Mrs. Samuel was a powerful, pretty lady, and a conscientious and continuous paddler. Mr. S. was none of these things but an ex-Bible reader, with an amazing knowledge of English, which he spoke in a quaint falsetto, far-away sort of voice, and that man's besetting sin was curiosity.' "'You be a Christian, ma'am,' said he. I asked him if he had ever met a white man who was not. "'Yes, ma'am,' says Samuel. I said, "'You must have been associating with people whom you ought not to know.' Samuel, fortunately not having a repartee for this, paddled with his long paddle for a few seconds. "'Where be your husband, ma'am?' Was the next conversational bomb he hurled at me. "'I no got one,' I answer. No got says Samuel, paralyzed with astonishment, and as Mrs. S, who did not know English, gave one of her vigorous drives with her paddle at this moment, Samuel as near as possible got jerked head first into the Ogoway, and we took on board about two bucketfuls of water. He recovered himself, however, and returned to his charge. No got one, ma'am No, say I furiously. Do you get much rubber round here? i no betrayed man says samuel refusing to fall into my trap for changing conversation why you no got one the remainder of the conversation is unreportable but he landed me at adande all right and got his dollar the next voyage i made which was on the next day i decided to go by myself to the factory which is on the other side of the island and did so I got some goods to buy fish with and heard from Mr. Cockshut that the poor boy-agent at Oswa-Mokita had committed suicide. It was a grievous thing. He was, as I have said, a bright, intelligent young Frenchman, but living in the isolation, surrounded by savage, tiresome tribes, the strain of his responsibility had been too much for him he had had a good deal of fever, and the very kindly head-agent for Wormans had sent Dr. Pellasier to see if he had not better be invalid at home. But he told the doctor he was much better, and as he had no one at home to go to, he begged him not to send him, and the doctor, to his subsequent regret, gave in. No one knows who has not been to West Africa— How terrible is the life of a white man in one of these out-of-the-way factories, with no white society and with nothing to look at, day out and day in but the one set of objects, the forest, the river, and the beach, which in a place like Oswa-Mokita you cannot leave for months at a time, and of which you soon know every plank and stone. I felt utterly wretched." as i started home again to come up to the end of the island and go round it and down to andande and paddled on for some little time before i noticed that i was making absolutely no progress i redoubled my exertions and crept slowly up to some rocks projecting above the water but past them i could not as the main current of the ogowe flew in hollow swirls round them against my canoe "'Several passing canoefuls of natives gave me good advice in Igalwa, but facts were facts and the Ogowe was too strong for me. After about twenty minutes an old Fan gentleman came down river in a canoe, and gave me good advice in Fan, and I got him to take me in tow. That is to say, he got into my canoe, and I held on to his, and we went back down river. I then saw his intention was to take me across to that disreputable village.' half fan half bakele which is situated on the main bank of the river opposite the island this i disapproved of because i had heard that some senegal soldiers who had gone over there had been stripped of every rag they had on and maltreated besides it was growing very late and i wanted to get home to dinner I communicated my feelings to my pilot, who did not seem to understand at first, so I feared I should have to knock them into him with a paddle. But at last he understood I wanted to be landed on the island and duly landed me, when he seemed much surprised at the reward I gave him in pocket-handkerchiefs. Then I got a powerful young Igalwa dandy to paddle me home. I did not go to the island next day, but down below Fula, watching the fish playing in the clear water and the lizards and the birds on the rocky high banks but on my next journey round to the factories i got into another and worse disaster i went off there early one morning and thinking the only trouble lay in getting back up the ogowe and having developed a theory that this might be minimized by keeping very close to the island bank i never gave a thought to dangers attributive to going down river so having by now acquired a pace my canoe shot out beyond the end rocks of the island into the main stream it took me a second to realize what had happened and another to find out i could not get the canoe out of the current without upsetting it and that i could not force her back up the current so there was nothing for it but to keep her head straight and now she had bolted a group of native ladies, who had followed my proceedings with much interest, shouted observations which I believed to have been, "'Come back! Come back! You'll be drowned!' "'Good-bye, Susanna. Don't you weep for me!' I courteously retorted, and flew past them and the factory beaches and things in general, keenly watching for my chance to run my canoe up a siding, as it were, off the current main line. I got it at last.' A projecting spit of land from the island with rocks projecting out of the water in front of it bothered the current, and after a wild turn round or so, and a near call from my terrified canoe trying to climb up a rock, I got into slack water and took a pause in life's pleasures for a few minutes. Knowing I must be near the end of the island I went on pretty close to the bank finally got round into the kangwe branch of the ogowe by a connecting creek and after an hour's steady paddling I fell in with three big canoes going up river they took me home as far as fula whence a short paddle landed me at andande only slightly late for supper convinced that it was almost as safe and far more amusing to be born lucky than wise now i have described my circumnavigation of the island i will proceed to describe its inhabitants the up river end of Lembareni island is the most inhabited a path round the upper part of the island passes through a succession of igalwa villages and by the roman catholic missionary station the slave villages belonging to these igalwas are away down the north face of the island opposite the fan-town of Fula which I have mentioned. It strikes me as remarkable that the Igalwa, like the Douala of Cameroons, have their slaves in separate villages, but this is the case, though I do not know the reason of it. These Igalwa slaves cultivate the plantations and bring up the vegetables and fruit to their owners' villages and do the housework daily. THE INTERIOR OF THE ISLAND IS COMPOSED OF HIGH, ROCKY, HEAVILY FORESTED HILLS, WITH HERE AND THERE A STREAM, AND HERE AND THERE A SWAMP. THE HIGHER LAND IS, TOWARDS THE UPRIVER END, DOWN RIVER THERE IS A LOWER STRIP OF LAND WITH HILLOCKS. THIS IS, I FANCY, FORMED BY DEPOSITS OF SAND, ETC, CATCHING IN AMONG THE ROCKS AND CONNECTING WHAT WERE AT ONE TIME SEVERAL ISOLATED ISLANDS. There are no big game or gorillas on the island, but it has a peculiar and awful house ant, much smaller than the driver ant, but with a venomous bad bite. Its only good point is that its chief food is the white ants, which are therefore kept in abeyance on Lembarene Island, although flourishing destructively on the mainland banks of the river in this locality." I was never tired of going and watching those Igalwa villagers, nor were I think the Igalwa villagers ever tired of observing me. Although the physical conditions of life were practically identical with those of the mainland, the way in which the Igalwas dealt with them, i.e. the culture, was distinct from the culture of the mainland fans. The Igalwas are a tribe very nearly akin, if not ethnically identical with— the impongwe and the culture of these two tribes is on a level with the highest native african culture african culture i may remark varies just the same as european in this that there is as much difference in the manners of life between say an igalwa and a bubi of fernando Po, as there is between a Londoner and a laplander the igalwa builds his house like that of the impongwe of bamboo and he surrounds himself with european made articles the neat houses fitted with windows with wooden shutters to close at night and with a deal door a carpenter made door are in sharp contrast with the ragged ant hill looking performances of the Akas, or the bark huts of the fen with no windows and just an extra broad bit of bark to slip across the hole that serves as a door On going into an Igalwa house, you will see a four-legged table, often covered with a bright-coloured tablecloth, on which stands a water-bottle, with two clean glasses, and round about you will see chairs, Windsor chairs. These houses have usually three, sometimes more, rooms, and a separate, closed-in little kitchen, built apart wherein you may observe European-made saucepans, in addition to the ubiquitous skillet outside all along the clean sandy streets the inhabitants are seated the Igalwa is truly great at sitting the men pursuing a policy of masterly inactivity broken occasionally by leisurely netting a fishing net the end of the netting hitched up on to the roof thatch and not held by a stirrup the ladies are employed in the manufacture of articles pertaining to a higher culture I allude, as Mr. Micawber would say, to bed-quilts and pillow-cases, the most gorgeous bed-quilts and pillow-cases, made of patchwork, and now and again you will see a mosquito-bar in course of construction, of course not made of net or muslin, because of the awesome strength and ferocity of the lembarene strain of mosquitoes, but stout, fair-flowered, and besprigged chintzes, and you will observe these things are often being sewn with a sewing-machine." The women, who may not be busy sewing, are busy doing each other's hair. Hair-dressing is quite an art among the Igalwa and Impongwe women, and their hair is very beautiful, very crinkly but fine. It is plaited up close to the head, partings between the plaits making elaborate parterres. Into the beds of plaited hair are stuck long pins of river ivory, hippo, decorated with black tracery and open work, and made by their good men. A lady will stick as many of these into her hair as she can get, but the prevailing mode is to have one stuck in behind each ear, showing their broad, long heads above like two horns. They are exceedingly becoming to these black but comely ladies, verily I think, the comeliest ladies I have ever seen on the coast. Very black they are— blacker than many of their neighbors, always blacker than the fans, and although their skin lacks that velvety pile of the true negro, it is not too shiny, but it is fine and usually unblemished, and their figures are charmingly rounded, their hands and feet small, almost as small as a high-class Calabar woman's, and their eyes large, lustrous, soft, and brown, and their teeth as white as the sea-surf, and undisfigured by filing the native dress for men and women alike is the cloth or paon the men wear it by rolling the upper line around the waist and in addition they frequently wear a singlet or a flannel shirt worn more africano flowing free rich men will mount a european coat and hat and men connected with the mission or trading stations occasionally wear trousers the personal appearance of the men does not amount to much when all's done so we will return to the ladies they wrap the upper hem of these cloths round under their armpits a graceful form of drapery but one which requires a continual readjustment the cloth is about four yards long and two deep and there is always round the hem a border, or false hem of turkey-red twill, or some other colored cotton cloth to the main body of the pawn. In addition to the cloth there is worn, when possible, a European shawl, either one of those thick cotton cloth ones printed, with Chinese-looking patterns in dull red on a dark background. This sort is wrapped round the upper part of the body, or what is more highly esteemed is a bright, light-coloured fancy-wool shawl, pink or pale-blue preferred, which being carefully folded into a roll is placed over one shoulder and is entirely for dandy. I am thankful to say they do not go in for hats when they wear anything on their heads. It is a handkerchief folded shawl-wise, the base of the triangle is bound round the forehead just above the eyebrows the ends carried over the ears and tied behind over the apex of the triangle of the handkerchief the three ends being then arranged fan-wise at the back add to this costume a sombre-coloured silk parasol not one of your green or red young tent-like brutally masculine knobby-sticked umbrellas but a fair lady-like parasol which being carefully rolled up is carried handle foremost right in the middle of the head also for dandy. Then a few strings of turquoise-blue beads, or imitation gold ones, worn around the shapely throat, and I will back my Igalwa or Mpongwe bell, against any of those South Sea-Island young ladies we nowadays hear so much about, thanks to Mr. Stevenson, yea, even though these may be wreathed with fragrant flowers, and the African lady very rarely goes in for flowers." THE ONLY TIME I HAVE SEEN THE AFRICAN LADIES WEARING THEM FOR ORNAMENT HAS BEEN AMONG THESE EGALWAS, WHO NOW AND AGAIN STUD THEIR NIGHT BLACK HAIR WITH PRETTY LITTLE ROUND, VIVIDLY RED BLOSSOMS, IN A MOST FETCHING WAY. I WONDER THE AFRICANS DO NOT WEAR FLOWERS MORE FREQUENTLY, FOR THEY ARE DEVOTED TO scent, BOTH MEN AND WOMEN. THE EGALWAS ARE A PROUD RACE one of the noble tribes like the empongwe and the ajumba the women do not intermarry with lower-class tribes and in their own tribe they are much restricted owing to all relations on the mother's side being forbidden to intermarry this well-known form of accounting relationships only through the mother mutirekt is in a more perfected and elaborated form among the igalwa than among any other tribe i am personally acquainted with brothers and cousins on the mother's side being in one class of relationship the father's responsibility as regards authority over his own children is very slight the really responsible male relative is the mother's elder brother from him must leave to marry be obtained for either girl or boy to him and the mother must the present be taken which is exacted on the marriage of a girl and should the mother die, on him and not on the father, lies the responsibility of rearing the children. They go to his house, and he treats and regards them, as nearer and dearer to himself than his own children, and at his death, after his own brothers by the same mother, they become his heirs. Marriage among the Igalwa and Impongwe is not direct marriage by purchase, but a certain fixed price present is made to the mother and uncle of the girl other propitiatory presents queliki, are made but do not count legally and have not necessarily to be returned in case of post-nuptial differences arising leading to a divorce a very frequent catastrophe in the social circle for the igalua ladies are spirited and devoted to personal adornment and they are naggers at their husbands Many times, when walking on Lemparene Island, have I seen a lady stand in the street and let her husband, who had taken shelter inside the house, know what she thought of him in a way that reminded me of some London slum scenes. When the husband loses his temper, as he surely does sooner or later, being a man, he whacks his wife or wives if they have been at him in a body.' he may whack with impunity so long as he does not draw blood if he does be it never so little his wife is off to her relations the present he has given for her is returned the marriage is annulled and she can remarry as soon as she is able her relations are only too glad to get her because although the present has to be returned yet the propitiatory offerings remain theirs, and they no more propitiatory offerings as well as any other present will accrue with the next set of suitors. This, of course, is only the case with the younger women. The older women, for one thing, do not nag so much, and moreover they have usually children willing and able to support them. If they have not, their state is, like that of all old childless women in Africa— a very desolate one infant marriage is now in vogue among the Igalwa, and to my surprise i find it is of quite recent introduction and adoption their own account of this retrograde movement in culture is that in the last generation some of the old people indeed claim to have known him There was an exceedingly ugly and deformed man who could not get a wife, the woman being then, as the men are now, great admirers of physical beauty. So this man, being very cunning, hit on the idea of becoming betrothed to one before she could exercise her own choice in the matter, and knowing a family in which an interesting event was likely to occur, he made heavy presents in the proper quarters and bespoke a coming infant if it should be a girl.' A girl it was, and thus say the Galwa, arose a custom, and nowadays only they do not engage their wives so early, as did the founder of the custom, they adopt infant marriage as an institution. I inquired carefully, in the interests of ethnology, as to what methods of courting were in vogue previously. They said people married each other because they loved each other, I hope other ethnologists will follow this inquiry up, for we may here find a real golden age, which in other races of humanity lies away in the mists of the ages behind the kitchen middens and the Cambrian rocks. My own opinion in this matter is that the earlier courting methods of the Igalwa involved a certain amount of effort on the man's part, a thing abhorrent to an Igalwa. It necessitated his dressing himself up, and likely enough fighting that impudent scoundrel who was engaged in courting her too, and above all serenading her at night on the native harp, with its strings made from the tendrils of a certain orchid, or on the marimba, amongst crowds of mosquitoes. Any institution that involved being out at night amongst crowds of those lembareni mosquitoes would have to disappear, let that institution be what it might." The Igalwa are one of the dying-out coast tribes. As well as on Lembarene Island, their villages are scattered along the banks of the lower Ogowe, and on the shores and islands of the Iliva Zeonlangi. On the island they are, so far undisturbed by the Fan invasion, and lays their lives away like lotus-eaters their slaves work their large plantations and bring up to them magnificent yams ready prepared oguma sweet potatoes papaw, etc not forgetting that delicacy odiaka cheese this is not an exclusive inspiration of theirs for the mpongwe and the benga use it as well it is made from the kernel of the wild mango a singularly beautiful tree of great size and stately spread of foliage I can compare it only in appearance and habit of growth to our Irish or evergreen oak, but it is an idealization of that fine tree. Its leaves are a softer, brighter, deeper green, and in due season, August, it is covered, not ostentatiously like the real mango, with great spikes of bloom, looking each like a gigantic head of mignonette but with small yellow-green flowers tucked away under the leaves filling the air with a soft sweet perfume and then falling on to the bare shaded ground beneath to make a deep-piled carpet i do not know whether it is a mango tree at all for i am no botanist but anyhow the fruit is rather like that of the mango in external appearance and in internal still more so for it has a disproportionately large stone these stones are cracked and the kernel taken out the kernels are spread a short time in the shade to dry then they are beaten up into a pulp with a wooden pestle and the pulp put into a basket lined carefully with plantain leaves and placed in the sun which melts it up into a stiff mass The basket is then removed from the sun and stood aside to cool. When cool, the cheese can be turned out in shape, and can be kept a long time if it is wrapped around with leaves and a cloth, and hung up inside the house. Its appearance is that of almond rock, and it is cut easily with a knife, but at any period of its existence, if it is left in the sun, it melts again rapidly into an oily mass." the natives use it as a seasoning in their cookery, stuffing fish and plantains with it, and so on, using it also in the preparation of a sort of sea-pie they make with meat and fish. To make this a thing well worth doing, particularly with hippo or other coarse meat, reduce the wood-fire to embers and make plantain-leaves into a sort of bag or cup. Small pieces of the meat should then be packed in layers with red pepper and odiaca in between. The tops of the leaves are then tied together with fine tie-tie, and the bundle, without any saucepan of any kind, stood on the glowing embers, the cook taking care there is no flame. The meat is done, and a superb gravy formed before the containing plantain leaves are burnt through, plantain leaves will stand an amazing lot in the way of fire this dish is really excellent even when made with python hippo or crocodile it makes the former most palatable but of course it does not remove the musky taste from crocodile nothing i know of will the great and important differences between the impongwe igalwa and ajumbe fetish and the fetish of those tribes round them consists in their conception of a certain spirit called oemburi they have as is constant among the bantu races of south-west africa a great god the creator a god who has made all things and who now no longer takes any interest in the things he has created their name for this god is anyambe which when pronounced sounds to my ears like anlinle the l's being very weak the derivation of this name however is from anima a spirit and Imbia, good this god unlike other forms of the creating god in fetish has a viceroy or minister who is a god he has created and to whom he leaves the government of affairs this god is o imbwiri, or o imbwiri, and this o is of very high interest to the student of comparative fetish. He has never been, nor can he ever become a man, i.e., be born as a man, but he can transfuse with his own personality, that of human beings, and also the souls of all those things we white men regard as inanimate, such as rocks, trees, etc., in a similar manner.' The Impongwe know that his residence is in the sea, and some of them have seen him as an old white man—not flesh-colour white, but chalk-white. There is another important point here, but it wants a volume to itself, so I must pass it. Oimbuti's appearance in a corporeal form denotes ill-luck, not death to the seer, but misfortune of a severe and diffused character." the ruin of a trading enterprise the destruction of a village or a family are put down to o imbuiri's action yet he is not regarded as a malevolent god a devil but as an avenger or punisher of sin and the Impongwe look on him as the being to whom they primarily owe the good things and fortunes of this life and as the being who alone has power to govern the host of truly malevolent spirits that exist in nature the different instruments with which he works in the shaping of human destiny bear his name when in his employ when acting by means of water he is o aningo when in the weather o mbuiri ngali when in the forests o mbuiri mbaka when in the form of a dwarf o Akoa and so on. The great difference between O Mwiri and the lesser spirits is this. The lesser spirits cannot incarnate themselves except through extraneous things. O Mwiri can. He can become visible without anything beyond his own will to do so. The other spirits must be in something to become visible. This is an extremely delicate piece of fetish which it took me weeks to work out i think i may say another thing about o Mbwiri, though i say it carefully and that is that among the impongwe and the tribe who are the parent tribe of the impongwe the now rapidly dying out of jumba and their allied tribe the igalwa o Mbwiri is a distinct entity while among the neighbouring tribes he is a class i e there are hundreds of o Mbwiri or ibwiri one for every remarkable place or thing such as rock tree or forest thicket and for every dangerous place in a river had i not observed a similar state of affairs regarding sasabonsum a totally different kind of spirit on the windward coast i should have had even greater trouble than i had in finding a key to what seemed at first a mass of conflicting details regarding this important spirit o There is one other very important point in Impongwe fetish, and that is that the souls of men exist before birth as well as after death. This is, indeed, as far as I have been able to find out, a doctrine universally held by the West African tribes, but among the Impongwe there is this modification in it, which agrees strangely well with the idea I found regarding reincarnated diseases existent among the Okyon tribes pure negroes the malevolent minor spirits are capable of being born with what we will call a man's soul as well as going in with a man's soul during sleep for example an olaga may be born with a man and that man will thereby be born mad he may at any period of his life given certain conditions become possessed by an evil spirit on logho abambo injembe in and become mad or ill but if he is born mad or sickly one of the evil spirits such as an olaga or an obambo the soul of a man that has not been buried properly has been born with him the rest of the impongwe fetish is on broad lines common to other tribes so i relegate it to the general collection of notes on fetish impongwe jurisprudence is founded on the same ideas as those on which West African jurisprudence at large is founded, but it is so elaborated that it would be a desecration to sketch it. It requires a massive monograph. End of part two, chapter six, Lembarene, recorded by of com.